please be seated. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We'll get to that text in just a minute. And if you're visiting with us because you're here with friends or this is the first time you tried uh, to go into church in a while, man, we're glad you're here. Um, I have a very thin intellectual veneer. Um, and just below that veneer is someone that deeply desires to experience and um, live out uh, this kind of spiritual, charismatic, like life experience kind of thing. And so I'm just going to warn you that this morning, two people have come up to me and said, you know, I had a feeling in my stomach that God's going to do something big this morning. One person just said to me, you know, if God changes your sermon, just go with it today. <laughs> I don't know what that means because I thought this sermon was kind of boring. So we'll, we'll see what happens, right? We'll see what happens when God shows up. Because when God shows up, everything changes. The world is different on a silent night 2,000 years ago when the creator of the universe took the form of a baby, took the role of a slave to everyone, emptied himself out in every way of the glory of heaven, of the presence of the angelic host, of everything that came around for the sake of us. And that story, the middle of that story is, is the cross. The middle of that story is crucifixion. It's the, it's the death of God sacrificing self. But that's only the middle of that story. We've been going through this series called Christmas Lights, and, and they've been loosely themed together about, you know, you follow the light, you seek the light. The light of the world came into uh, this place. Uh, the, 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 the darkness isn't terrifying. It's not scary to those of us who understand who Jesus is. Rather, the darkness cradles the light of Advent, and those two things work together. But this week, we see in Philippians chapter 2 that we are supposed to shine like stars in the darkness. Y'all, if the Spirit's going to show up, I need a little more back and forth. It's just, <laughs> that's the way it's got to work, all right? <laughs> Somebody's got to help me. All right. So did you ever receive advice when you're about to graduate high school, about to start the next thing. Maybe you're going to move out on your own. Maybe you're about to start a, a new adventure in college or, or maybe you were, you were joining the service or something. And, and there was that moment where your parents deeply wanted to give you something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you had done the very best you absolutely could to raise your children, to teach them not only right from wrong, but what is good and what is lovely and what is beautiful in this world. And there's that moment where they've already packed their dorm fridge in the dorm and it's time for you to get into the car and go. And you feel like, man, I just need to tell you one more thing. What was it? What was that one more thing? 
I mean, you, I, I imagine that, that that is the worst possible time to try to teach somebody anything. Like, if you haven't done that in the last two and a half years, it ain't going to happen at that moment. Like, you're, the ship has sailed. You've done the work. It's like your Greek final. I don't know if you've ever had a Greek final before, but you cannot crash study for your Greek final. Like, the best thing you can do the night before that final is go see a movie because if you haven't done the work, it's over. Or better yet, we'll see you next semester, right? <laughs> but if you were to quantify that kind of advice that you wanted to give in that last moment, and that's ironic as I'll get out because what your son or daughter wants to hear in that moment, what you wanted to hear in that moment was not advice, it was blessing. What they wanted to hear in that moment is, we are so proud of you. We think you can do this. You know, there is nothing in this world that we don't think you can handle with God by your side. But that's not the kind of language that we give. We want to give language like what Mary Hulse talks about. He, she says, remember who you are and, and don't get dead, okay? <laughs> don't get dead. Drive safely. Make wise choices. And, and know that no matter what happens this semester, no matter what happens in the next few years, know that you can always come back. Nothing that you can do will separate us, uh, our love for you. That's the kind of things that we want to say in that moment. And you can kind of imagine all the, the feeling and the magnitude of the presence that you want to put into that moment when you're saying goodbye. And words just don't ever do it in that moment. They fall short. And if you know how that feels, then I think you have an idea of how Paul feels when he writes down this letter to the Philippians. And, and in, in chapter two, he, he begins uh, with, with this, this hymn, and, and maybe it was, it, was, it, was, it was his work, or maybe it was probably more likely it was a song that that church already knew, and it was, it was around, and he quotes that song, and then that song kind of serves as the, the theme for the rest of everything else that he's gonna tell them. Because the way that Jesus was and the way that Jesus lived and then the way that he was raised paints the story of what it means to be a human being. And immediately after that hymn, the only way that he can express his love and his concern for what's happening in that church is by singing them a song. And immediately what follows is his best advice. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in your ab my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But if even I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Let's pray. Father God, in this Advent season, in these short, short days, 
when it seems like night comes too early and stays too long, we give you praise. Father, we don't fear the darkness. We aren't afraid of the night because you have placed stars in the heavens. And those stars guide our paths, light our hearts. And Father, for the gift of your son who was born as a baby, we give you thanks. And help us, help us to shine, help us to be light. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching. Let your spirit fill this place. Show us who you truly are. And it's in the name of your son we all pray, the church says, amen. So he begins this section by saying, obey me. But that doesn't really fit. Maybe that's not exactly what he means. I think what he means is, follow me as I follow Christ. In fact, he's going to say that a little bit later in the book. I think what he means is, that word obey, it shows up earlier in the chapter, that we should obey Christ. He tells them to work out your salvation. Work it out, not like some sort of white knuckle grip, hoping against hope that you might get into heaven if you just show up to church on time one more time and that you don't cuss when the car wrecks. Maybe that's missing the point. I don't think that's what he means. What he says when he says, work out your salvation, what he means is to figure it out, reveal it, make it apparent. But we do it together. Working out our salvation is like building something together. It's, it's how to live together in light of the Jesus hymn that, that he just sang to them. We reveal it together, we unfold it together, and we do it in fear and trembling. That means that it's in the presence of God. It's not so much that you're terrified and scared because Santa Claus is coming to town and he sees when you're sleeping and he sees when you're awake and he knows when you've been good and he knows when you've been bad. Santa Claus sounds really creepy in that song. <laughs> it means that we do it in the presence of God. And every time God shows up, the only natural response for any created being is awe. God is here. He's in our midst. And he's doing the work for his good pleasure. Have you ever done something for your good pleasure just because you wanted to do it, just because it feels right? I have like hundreds of things that I do for my own good pleasure. Maybe it's just because I'm an introvert and I just, those things that I love to do, I know that I love to do them. Like, like there's a mesmerizing rhythm in knitting. There's that quiet stillness of the cold and the deer blind. There's that frenetic joy of wrestling a toddler and that spiritual presence in a wide open empty place. It doesn't really matter what you do for your own good pleasure, but you know exactly what it is. And this is the way you know exactly what it is. It's because you don't really talk about it with other people. I like to tell people that I'm struggling with running right now. <laughs> you know, my workouts haven't been as good as they were before. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm brushing up on my Hebrew. None of those things are my good pleasure. I don't talk about the things that I really love to do because I just really love to do them. And it doesn't really matter if, if somebody is there with me or not because that's not the point of it. And so he says, it can happen in a group. It can happen, but it doesn't have to, these good things. It's almost a secret. It's simply good pleasure. We work out our salvation together. We reveal it in unfolding in the awe and the presence of the God who is with us. And God is doing the work that is his good pleasure. God is doing the stuff that God loves to do, whether you're there or not. He doesn't care. He just loves to do it. So don't murmur and argue, Paul continues. Don't complain. That's what murmur means. It's kind of like grumbling. The best example, I think, is in Exodus chapter 16. I don't know if you remember that story, but, but uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're, they're traveling with Moses, and God is providing them food in the desert. Food just appears on the ground every morning when they wake up. Wouldn't that be amazing? You just walk outside, there's food on the ground. God's just giving it to you because you're in no place where you can make food for yourself. And it's amazing that it happens every day. And you get just as much as you need. If you try to store it up, it rots. But God is just giving you what you need every day for today. And amazingly, the people complain. They're sick of it. They're tired of manna. And so they murmur. They grumble against God. And so God gives them quail. Quail that is going to come out of their nose and out of their mouths and out of their ears. They're going to eat so much quail, they're going to be sick of quail. Because the people were murmuring, grumbling. In, in the book of Numbers, to grumble against God, it's the opposite of faith. In the book of Numbers, the opposite of faith isn't disbelief. It's not doubting the presence of God. It's not, it's, it's grumbling against God. It's complaining. The God who loves the good pleasure of feeding and caring for the people who are in the wilderness. And the people murmur. Where do we murmur in our lives? Where do we find those places where we just kind of want to complain about it for a little bit. We don't like the way it's happening. We don't like the way it works. Don't murmur or argue. I think dialing up murmuring is arguing. This is, this is what harms the people that are closest to you. What murmuring does to a community, arguing does to friendships. And, and Paul is concerned about this because it's the connection of of murmuring and arguing together that'll destroy a church like the church in Philippi. It'll hollow it out and leave it crippled to any attack from the outside or any crisis in the inside. So just don't complain that way. Don't argue that way. Now that's not to say you can't disagree. You can't even disagree in, in passionate ways. I was going to tell you about uh, 
the story of two elders from a former church and then I realized like those two elders were also in another former church and then these two elders are probably also in this church too. I just haven't met them yet or know who they are. But there were these two elders in one of my places where I used to work and, and they were the first two to hear about a pastoral crisis. If something tragic happened, they were the first two to know about it. They were also the first two that would go to the hospital to visit people in those beds to bring comfort and they both deeply cared about this church and, and those people. But that is exactly and precisely where all of the similarities between those two men ended. One of them was like Mr. Spock. He was dispassionate. He was logical. He was highly rational. And, and in a conversation about an issue, that's the approach that he would take. The other elder was very intuitive. He knew what was right and what was wrong. He was passionate about it. He didn't know why he felt that way, but he just knew he felt that way, and it was real. And I would sit in meetings and hear those two guys go at it against each other, arguing about an idea. They were both equally intelligent. They were just different. And they would have arguments in meetings that I thought, coming home, this is going to split the church. And then they would have discussions over coffee where they would get so heated with one another that they would be yelling in a coffee shop. And there are times where you thought if these guys would disagree anymore, someone is going to walk away from this meeting with a bloody nose. But that never happened. Because they loved each other. Because they trusted each other. It's like the story of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson um, if you know much about our American history, then you know that, that these two men were opposed to one another in almost every way, in a lot of ways, about how American government should be run. And they argued vehemently with one another in face-to-face, -face, but also in writing pamphlets about each other. And if you go back and read some of those original sources, they are cruel to one another because they believe that these ideas matter. But it was John Adams on his deathbed. One of his last words were, at least Jefferson survives. His last hope for the nature, nation as he passed was, at least my arch rival whom I've disagreed with over and over and over still lives. Because he trusted Jefferson. Now, the fascinating Part of that story is Jefferson died about five hours later. But I think what this teaches us is that in order to have a good result in the processes that we engage, in order for us to be a better community that's better at fulfilling our mission and executing the things that God is doing around us, that as we see God's good pleasure being carried out in our community, that we have the courage to join it, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have big arguments because the things that we talk about, they matter. We are talking about the kingdom of God. But in order to have that level of disagreement, we need to have even more trust with one another. And the only way that that trust can happen is if we live like adults, that we act like grown-ups. 
The, te- the theme that uh, Paul is unpacking in, in chapter 2 begins at the very beginning, chapter 2, verse 1. It begins with if. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation from love, if there is any sharing in the Spirit, if there is any compassion, if there is any sympathy, then. If we want any of those things, if any of those things are going to happen, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, and be in one mind. Now, being in one mind, being in full accord, having the same love, that doesn't mean that we're always going to agree. It doesn't mean that we're going to always see eye to eye or, or that you have to walk in lockstep with this church. I love the diversity of thought that we have here at Highland. And if I were to ask some sort of theologically loaded question, I would probably find about as many different answers as the people I ask here. And that is beautiful. But it does mean that if we live in that kind of diversity, that everyone understands and sees the work of God what God is doing in our midst is more important than anything else. That's the only way it works. The only way that Jefferson and Adams could see one another as the best hope for the nation after they passed was because they believed that the other believed in America more than they believed in themselves. The only way that those two elders who argued every meeting could never find the same place, could, could not destroy that church that was, was, they were leading, was because they believed in the church more than they believed in each other or themselves. We have to see what God is doing in our midst as the most important thing. What happens when a community does that? What does it look like? I think one of the benefits of it looking like that, of it pursuing what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2, is that a church would become inoculated to murmuring. I think people who are emotionally intelligent, who are spiritually wise, they create this kind of herd immunity around them. Like, what happens when gossip doesn't stick in a church? What happens when you go to murmur and, and complain or to, to talk about an idea and the other person's like, yeah, that sounds terrible. What are you going to do about that? Oh, you want me to go join you in complaining? No. Why don't you go talk to your brother and sister? Why don't you try to work that out? What happens when we embrace that kind of spiritual wisdom? And we begin to think about what does it mean to shine like stars. Paul says, shine like stars in a wicked and perverse generation. A, f- a few Sundays ago, we talked about that, how amazing starlight truly is. A-, a flaming ball of helium gas, which is experiencing constant fission and fusion within its midst, hundreds of billions of miles away, creating explosions that would annihilate you in a moment if you were within a thousand miles from it. That light has been traveling through the dark of space for millions of years, and you look up in the night sky, and it hits the back of your retina, and there it ends. That God created and envisioned 
a beauty that is millions of years old just so that you can experience it in the dark of night when you walked outside. Shine like stars and see the beauty of the heavens. But I don't think that's the full idea that Paul is trying to get at. In the first century, the only way that ships could navigate were to navigate by the stars. It's not just pretty, it's how that people could chart the course of their lives. And I think that's closer to the meaning that Paul is talking about than any sense of aesthetics. Be the kind of light so that other people can guide their lives through that. Reflect God in such a way. Look like Jesus in such a way that other people can see you and realize how to steer away from the rocks. It can happen in a million different ways, but I think the best way that it expresses is expressed in hard times and suffering. It's like that terrible mission trip. It's the mission trip where everyone gets sick. Some of you that were at Brazil, you know exactly what I was talking about this summer. It's where you drink the wrong water or you eat the wrong food and everyone in the hotel is fighting for those two restrooms that exist. It's where you go and the work isn't ready for you. And you have to just make do. And it's not what you expected. And it costs a lot of money to get there. And you think somebody should have been a little more careful about this to get it set up better so that we could have a better experience. But instead of murmuring and arguing and complaining, you take a step back and you take a deep breath. And then you see God show up like you would never have imagined. If there's anything that is missing in our culture and society right now, it is believers who are attempting to be unapologetically and courageously kind in every moment and every day and every situation. Not that they're perfect. Not that they are casting any sort of judgment on the people around them about their choices. They have just made the decision that they're gonna shine like stars and be the point of light that somebody else can navigate through. I love uh, Leonard Cohen's songs. There's a real beauty. He was an amazing uh, poet, and most everyone knows his most famous work is probably Broken Hallelujah. It's a song that reflects on the life of David, among other things. It was always unclear exactly what Cohen was talking about in his poetry. But he wrote one song that's now my new favorite. It's called Anthem. And the refrain that gets repeated over and over in Anthem is, there is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There was a crack in that perverse and twisted generation in Philippi that let the light into that Roman outpost of a town. There was a crack in the rigid, power-holding religious system that tried to protect itself from the teachings of Jesus by bringing the ruthless control of the Roman Empire to bear in the form of a cross on a lonely hill. There was a crack in the tenuous and fragile hope Israel held as they waited generation after generation for Messiah. 
and there is a crack in our common lives. In the midst of too many Christmas cards to write and too many gifts to wrap and too many in-laws to visit, it's how the light gets in. And when we join in the work of God, doing the thing that God loves to do just because God loves to do it, and we find ourselves kind of absorbing that joy that God gives off in that moment, that we love it too, and we, we find ourselves part of that living crack. We find our fingers pushing through the disappointment of this present age, working together what it means to be God's people, hoping against hope to widen that crack just a bit for more of heaven's light to shine through. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I am becoming more and more convinced. You are that crack. It's you. And maybe, just maybe, you can be the pinpoint of light that shines God's love to the people around you. And maybe, just maybe, like a baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago, maybe that faithfulness could change the world. Will you please stand for our benediction? Island, my prayer for you this week is that you will be light, shining in a dark place, that you will see the cracks between all of the problems in this world, and that as you see those things, you will look for the light shining through it. May you be brave. May you follow God. May you find your good pleasure in what he leads you. Go in peace.